Yeah, I do appreciate your prayers, and uh, this time next week, uh, the verdict will be out <laughs> uh, of what, uh, what God is doing in all of our lives. For my life, uh, is, it's not turned on? No. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'll use this one, yeah. Yeah. So it uh, will be interesting to see how God unfolds as uh, I think uh, the book of Ruth is uh, appropriate to see how God unfolds life uh, for us as we do not understand why and how he does it, his timing. But um, turn with me to the book of Ruth. Chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of their sons was Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those took Moabite wives, the name of who were Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose in the, in, with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out for the place where she was with her daughter-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they, were lifted, uh, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, go, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against, out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there where will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they, became, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. God, we pray for your kindness to be with us this morning. First, bless your reading of your word, and bless this time of, of unfolding your word to this, this, this delightful story to us, Lord. We thank you for it, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would minister each word to us, that we will see your love, dear Father, for us, that, that the Father who has sent his Son to die for us and to live for us, and by the power of the Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would apply all these things to us today so that we'd be really mindful that we have been given a gift and we continually get a gift every, come, every time we come to worship you. And Father, I pray that you would be with us all as we are spending our moments with you in this place, with your people, so that we may all testify that you are our God and these people are our people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in the hymnal as we're going to look at uh, the Westminster Confession for a second. Page 851. Chapter 5, titled Providence. Page 851, the back of your hymnal, Chapter 5 of Providence. Now just read along with me as we look at this succinct statement of, the pro- of providence and the definition of providence. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of, his glory, of, of the glory of his po- wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means that is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it most wise and powerful bound, abounding, the otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to, this own, to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth over time leave for season his own children to manifold temptations 
and the corruption of their hearts, own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption or deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. This is um, <clears throat> this providence of God, this God who is, we are we're thankful that God is sovereignly in control of all things, yet is, is a transcendent God, but a very loving and very imminent God. God is a creator but he's also a redeemer. Um, I wrote some other things down. He is, he is one who sustains on, on our level, but he is the ruler of all things. And we need to understand that God works on these levels, and we're thankful that he is not, just not a God who, as some deists would say, that God just started it all up around the clock and just let it all go on its own, but that God is a God who is imminent, one who came to us in the form of a, of a human flesh, sinful flesh. His name was Jesus. And he came to dwell among us. So God is holy, but he's also one who walks among us and desires to communicate to us and desires to be with us. And he is Emmanuel. And that's all the themes you can think of as we think of Christmas, as we think of these songs. I know for me, when Christmas was my first Christmas as a believer. How I used to read the song, I read you know the Christmas songs, and how they changed completely for me. I mean, you know, I've been singing and singing them for years, and all of a sudden, these words really meant something, which is an amazing thing. And um, what's important as we look at the Book of Ruth is to realize that God is a God, a ruler. He is sovereign over everything, even over the molecules of everything that exists. Visible, invisible. And yet we, what Ruth, the book of Ruth tells us, the writer we don't know, tells us that God is continually involved in the everyday part of our lives. This is a book about ordinary people, which is so cool, because you know what? You and I are ordinary people. Just ordinary people, and God works, and God is very concerned about our ordinary life. And that's what's great about Ruth, the book of Ruth. Here is a book that we do not have any visions, we don't have any dreams, we don't hear any prophets, we don't have any miracles, we don't have all these things that everybody says wow to and that people feel that they need in their lives to validate that God is working in their life. You've heard me say, drip, drip, drip. This is where God works in the drippiness of our life. It's the, mon the mundane things of life that God is very much a part of. Ruth shows that through decisions, whether good or bad. God is involved, especially with his people. And that's what the book of Ruth is about. It just is so, I just enjoy it. It's such a great book. It is such a delightful book. You can read it every day, and it only takes 20, 25 minutes to read. Just, it just is such a great book because he, because the writer just brings us to a place where two unlikely main subjects in a book, two women in the beginning, really is a story about Jesus coming. And we see that names are so important here. It gives us names. And then at the end, when we're going to look at chapter 4, how the genealogy is so important to tie all this in that, G, that God was 
who, who at the right time, Galatians tells us, at the exact moment, at the right time, God sent his son. And here is the, here is the moment by moment plays that God did it. And, and who? Not in some great king, though he did. But this story is about just these pathetic people in their lives at pathetic moments which are so transparent, which is so endearing to us, it should be, that we see this, this, this conversion of someone who was over here, an alien and stranger, now is someone who is incorporated in the family of God. And someone who is a believer and someone who is a follower of God stumbles and falls. And not questions, but struggles with God's providence in your life, boy, if that's not real, if that's not you and me, what are you doing, Lord? What's going on? We've mentioned, as always, as the book of Peter, we've looked at the letter of Peter about suffering and going on in everyday life. Here is, you can't get any more pedestrian than Ruth, which is so good. Written at the time of Judges, and it's very, what's good is, he gives us, he or she, it could be, I, who knows? We don't even know who the author was. But during the time of Judges, as it says, gives us a historical context, which is really good. There's a lot of history here. To, to, why? Because to validate that this was not a myth or a story or some fairy tale, but that this was embedded in a time of history because God is a God of history who works in everyday life. In the days when the Judges ruled, now, you and I know that if you read the end of the book of Judges, which is, if, for me, it's the next page to the left. It says in verse 25, the very last verse, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Very familiar with that phrase. But boy, the book of Judges, tribal wars, upheaval, civil unrest, Violent aggression from other countries and other nations. Just complete disobedience. And what's good in, in, in the book of Judges, we see that there's this cycle that goes on and on and on. And we are going to and keep on praying for me if we keep on going in that direction. We'll be looking in January at the book of Judges to see God's handiwork in that mess. And this book is written as the book of Ruth in the days of Judges during this awful dark time. Not only politically, but spiritually dark. God raising up, not a king, but these judges to rule, not over all the kingdom of God, but in these little political pockets. God was involved in raising up these people. But if you can get a misunderstanding, if you look at the book of, Ruth, uh, book of Judges, that God was intermittently involved, where Book of Ruth tells us that God is continuously involved. That's the difference. God is continuously involved in every moment of our lives, of every day and every second of our lives. And that's what I hope you enjoy as we look, that God cares about ordinary people to, to carry out His will. As dysfunctional, as sinful, as confused, as raw and honest they want to be, and they, and they have to be, God says, this is who I use. This is who you are. 
So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, a famine. What caused this famine? It was a famine in the land and, the man, and, and, and a man, lots of names here for particular reasons, very particular about names of na- naming people that will never show up again. You know, think you name a name of somebody and they're going to last through the book. And right in the beginning, there's a bunch of names that were given and they're gone. But yet, the writer gave us a purpose for these names. When the, Jew, the, the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, why was there famine in the land? Now, from a horizontal perspective, turn with me to Judges 6, just so we get an idea why there may have been a famine. Midian oppresses Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> That's not going to sound unusual when we start looking at the book of Judges. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of their land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. This may have been the horizontal reason for a famine. And it may be because of Judges, as we see the, 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 the atmosphere and the climate in the book of Judges, that famine comes because you can't grow anything. And if God is one who controls rain, God may be, his judgment may be against Israel because they're so fickled and so disobedient. And they're just so blatantly disobedient and have no regard for God that we see that God brings drought and brings famine as a judgment in the, book, in the Old Testament. Now I'm not saying one way or the other why is the reason. And I'm going to be careful not to give judgmental statements because I don't know for sure what all these are. I don't know. I don't, I, God hasn't told me directly or us directly what these are. But in the Old Testament, famine, God withholding rain, was a judgment. But it was also a, an initiative and also an, a catalyst for God to work miraculously in the lives of God's people. Because what do they do? When there's a famine, they cry out to God because they depend upon God. And you and I know that when, when we see this leanness of certain things going in our lives, God, you know, we're holding on to things. And I always say there are things what God does in my life is that I'm holding on to things, not knowing that I'm holding on to things, that he actually takes his finger and pulls my fingers off of the things I'm holding so dearly to because he wants me to cling to him and not to them. Regardless if I think I'm clean or not, I got white knuckles because I depend on these things. This is my sustenance. This defines who I am. This, is, this, this makes me Jim. So whether there was what reason for the famine in the land, I don't know. But in the, in, in, we're talking about this man and his family lived in the, in the town of Bethlehem in, the, in Judah which the town of Bethlehem is, is known as the, the house of bread. 
Very interesting that there would be a name for the house of bread and have no food. Where you could find that maybe this was a judgment of God. Where God was going to take care of, especially the place Bethlehem was a very fertile place and there was an abundance as we will see. As the writer wonderfully gives us a preview to next week, which is great, it could be a TV show, always gives us, it just so happens, kind of comment. Just so happens. It's great. Stay tuned next week until you see Ruth and Naomi. It just so happens that they head into Bethlehem when the barley harvest is going on. Evidently, God has changed something here. So there is an abundance of what it was. But these people, who was his name was Elimelech, whose name means my God, is king. And the name of his wife was Naomi, which means sweet. And the name of the two sons, Malan and Kilian, or Chilian, whatever you want to pronounce it. His name is cool, right? My God is my king. Malan and Chilian are kind of names I don't know. I mean, they mean sickly and death. Sick and dying could be their names. Not definitively, not something I'm saying that it's... Uh, that anybody can, you know, people say it dogmatically, but there are some questions about where they even came from. They could have been even Canaanite names, which may give you an idea that if they're picking Canaanite names in the place of Bethlehem in the land of Judah with the Father's name, my God is my King, why on earth would you pick Canaanite names? Could it be a spiritual barometer of where Elimelech's line and heart were and his family? I don't know. And they were Ephrathites in Bethlehem, which means they, they could have been of a noble class. They could have had some means of life. They could, have been, they could have had stuff. They could have been a noble family in Judah, in Bethlehem. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Why Moab? Everybody asks this. <laughs> All the commentators and pastors and, and scholars, everybody just has a big question. Why Moab? Moab was a, was a dreadful place. Though, in the plains of Moab, which was only 50 miles away, entering into Moab, and who knows where in, under, under the mountains there, in the, in the hill country, in the plains of Moab, they could, there was a, it, they could have grown. It was a fertile place there. Maybe they heard that it was fertile, and they were just going there because there was an abundance. And his being in his mind, thinking that this is a famine, and he needs to take care of his family. But, there didn't seem to be a mass exodus from Bethlehem, was there? Didn't seem like everybody else left Bethlehem. Just Elimelech and his family. Why did Elimelech leave? Well, you and I know that sometimes for the sake of our family and to take care of things, we will do things that sometimes we don't think may be very smart or we just feel that this is an opportunity that you know God gave us. But to Moab, Moab is a, a place... Moabites, you know, they came from the incestual relationship between Lot's uh, daughter and, and him after they, they left Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the Moabites uh, were never allowed, if you read in, in the book of Deuteronomy, they were never ever to be allowed in the temple to worship, ever. It says forever. <laughs> and, and that means forever. Forever they were never allowed to be free to worship have come into the temple, ever. And they were also, in the, in the book of Ju Judges, they were uh, the uh, king of Moab, just Eglon his name was, 
just uh, was uh, uh, it kept him under servitude for years. So why would you go to Moab? But we don't know. And they remain there. And, but, and then, so they, they, they think about trying to divert disaster. So they, do they think that maybe God doesn't, is not caring for them? I don't know. And they say, God, I need to take care of, I need to do something drastic. I need to leave the safety of Bethlehem, the safety of my people, the covenant people of God, who were told by God through covenant that he was going to bless them and take care of them, and go and live as an alien stranger with the Moabites who were worshippers of Chemosh, who sacrificed human beings. But they were cool because they didn't care who you worshipped. But, again, they were aliens and strangers. So they took on the place of being an alien stranger just to save themselves. Now, was Elimelech faithless? Did he leave because he just didn't believe God was going to bless and God was going to help and God was going to live up to his covenant of kessed love, this faithful love? I don't know. Did Naomi, was Elimelech the one that made the decision? Sounds like Naomi's a pretty pretty strong-willed person sometimes if you listen to her. Maybe she was a part of the process and wanted to go. But they were worrying about dying, and they were only there 10 years, and Elimelech dies. And then, not only Elimelech dies, but here we see that the two sons take on Moabite wives. Uh, doesn't sound like that would be a smart thing to do, but they did. Now, it's not saying that there was no reason that these Moabite women's could, women could have made some testimony or saying that I wanted to follow your religion or something like this and may have made some statements. We, we aren't told that. We do, we are, we do see a spiritual uh, uh, change in, in one of them. But they take wives, and then what happens? Naomi loses her husband. Then she's got blessed. She thinks she's blessed and wonderful. It seems like her conversation and the way she describes Orpah, I, was, I may say Oprah, I'm sure I'm going to say it sometime, but Orpah and, um, and uh, uh, Ruth, there seems to be this relationship that they have, really close, and she may find their daughter-in-laws a blessing, and they may find her, the mother-in-law, a blessing, and then all of a sudden the sons die, and now there's just women in a place where no family, nobody to take care of them, no social services, no government, nobody to back them up, nobody to bail them out. Terrible place to be. No, no family at all. And Naomi saw this, and so she says, what's interesting, she, before she goes on and has this conversation with them, it's interesting, interesting the way the writer says this in verse 5, I think. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman... Now she doesn't. Now he doesn't even call. Now there's no name. It's just she's nameless. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She really is now a nobody. Virtually, she's a nobody. She stands for nothing. She has no rights. She has no name. She goes back home. She has nobody. Maybe she thinks she may have somebody. Maybe that whole thing about the Leverite marriage and somebody who's in her kindred would be able to take care of her. 
But she, and she implies that in, in the next stanza. But it's interesting to see that this woman now has no husband, no nothing, can't claim anything. Nobody, no sons, no, no generations, no grandchildren. Seems interesting that God would treat her this way, for, but without a reason. And we, un- we don't understand why God has done it, whether it be for judgment or God is just testing Naomi's faith. Now, Naomi has great faith because, as we see, then she rose with her daughter-in-laws to return. Now, there's a interesting terms that are used here. One term is called return. Return is used several times in this, in this chapter. And the word return, usually the word in Hebrew is meant to repent and turn around. So there's maybe a play on words that she's returning back to Israel, returning back to the people that she left, turning her back upon those people. Now she's turning her backwards and turning around and looking and saying that she needs to go back. Why does she go back? Because she's still waiting for the Lord to return. It says here, the Lord has visited my people. And given them food. Her radar's been up. She's been keeping in touch. She is aware of what's going on at back home. And she heard in the fields, meaning that she must have been working with Ruth and maybe Orpah, in the fields of, with Moab to live because they had nothing. Hopefully finding someone generously to, to support for them, support them. So she's so listen to many times as we read this the word return or go back or turn around is there. It may be implied in here that this is some stance that she is now going to do that she is like as we're going to read a prodigal daughter. Because if you turn with me, turn to, to the prodigal son Luke 15 just to get an idea of the mentality of going back, her going back. This will come into play later if you just reading the story Looking at verse 19 of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke. This is how God accepts, excuse me, this is how, how, how the Father, who is this prodigal God, this wonderful picture of God in this story that we always call the prodigal son. Actually, this is about God loving and accepting and merciful, taking a stray son a child who has veered off on the wrong path and by God's grace been faced, faced back to the right direction. But he says, Luke says here in verse 17, But when he came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven and be- against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is, I think, the mentality that Naomi has as she goes back to this land. She seems to be repentant. She's longing to want to go back. Notice that she says she'll be going on talking about her name. She even changes her name because she doesn't even feel worthy of calling herself sweet. Naomi. She now changes her name to reflect who she really feels, that she doesn't deserve that name. Like the prodigal son did. Don't call me your son. Just give me a hired hand because it's better being here, working for you, than being where I came from. 
And so we see this mentality of this turning around by Naomi. So she set out from this place, and she was in verse 17, verse 7, back to Ruth. She set out from the place where she was with her daughter-in-laws, and they went out on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi, for some reason, comes to some intersection, I don't know what triggered it, between Moab and Bethlehem, and she came to a place, a point of intersection in her life, said, wait a minute. Do they know what they're doing when they're following me? Do they understand what, what it means to follow me? Now that I'm going back to my people and my God. Not to say she ever left, but maybe spiritually and physically she kind of pulled herself away. We don't know. It's, it, you can't be dogmatic about these things. If you read different commentaries and you hear different sermons and you read different scholars, there are some who are very easy on Ruth, excuse me, easy on Naomi, and some beat the daylights out of her. But Naomi said in verse 8, said to her and her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to the, her mother's house. May the Lord deal with you kindly. This is this kessed love, this steadfast love, this covenant love that God speaks of throughout all the Old Testament. This covenantal community love, this equivalent to the agape love that we hear in the New Testament. So kessed love is equivalent to agape love, this serving love, this committing love, this uh, selfless kind of love. And, he, and she truly desires that the Lord is not a God who just is in Judah, but is a God who is everywhere. He is not a territorial God. He is a God of the universe. And if he desires to bless them, he can and will bless them. And he's asking, she's asking for that blessing. The, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with my son and me, my children and me. The Lord grant you, may you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said, no way, we're not going to go back. We're going to stay with you. But Naomi gets into this dialogue again with him and says, Wait a minute, my daughter's turned back. Why will you go with me? Count the cost. Count the cost. You are a Moabite. That doesn't go well in Judah, in Bethlehem. You're a foreigner. Not only just a foreigner, but a Moabite. You're going to forsake everything. You're forsaking safety. I'm an old woman. I can't have kids. I'm never going to have another child for you to marry so that someone can take care of you. I want you not to follow me and give up everything. I want you to go back to your family, go back to your people, and find peace and rest. And may God deal with you kindly there. Some people rip her apart because you're saying, why are they sending back to the pagans? Why didn't she witness for the Lord? Why didn't she say things to him like, you know, what are you going to go back to the pagans for? Why are you going to do, you know, they just rip her to shreds and I'm going... I don't know. I think this woman is genuinely in love with these people and realizes that she is concerned for them. Now, yeah, does she believe that God's going to take care of them if they end up following her? And I don't know. I think she does believe that. But in her heart of hearts at that moment, she's saying to them, I just think, go back. I want you to have peace. I want you to have a life. Because with me, you're not going to have a life. I can't promise you anything but working in the fields. And being dependent upon the gleaning that people are generously going to give us. 
Unless, maybe, she says, you know, she may have in the back of her mind, she says, even if I go back and I find another husband, and somebody may have this whole idea of finding a kinsman who will then carry on her name, her husband's name, Turn my, turn, she says, uh, verse 11, but Naomi, turn back my daughters, why go with me? I don't have any sons left in my womb, and uh, they can never become your husbands. There's nothing you're going to find from me. I'm not, there's nothing I can give you. Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should have bear sons, even if I have hope, she's kind of letting on her hand here, thinking that, you know, she's still questioning what God's doing in her life. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. No, I'm sorry. Verse 13 says, Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they grow up? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for is it exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me? No matter what has happened in her life, she hasn't given up on the sovereignty of God. She even realized that this bitterness, this life, the death of her husband, the death of her children, came from the hand of God. Now, it wasn't God striking them dead, as we read in the book of Providence, in, the, in, the, in the, the Confession of Faith about Providence. God is the primary cause, but he uses secondary causes as well. I mean, it's like the grass, it's like the trees. God is not out there causing. The plants to grow. He is the reason why they're growing. But it's the sun filling the plants, giving them food, the nourishment from the ground. God works through causes. It's this, it's this, this uh, first thing. God is the primary cause, but he allows secondary causes to do things. For example, the concurrence. I talked about the, 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 the uh, theological term called concurrence. When I first came here. That is that the decree of God, the will of God is this mainstream that's going through history. And God uses my sin and your sin. He uses all of our decisions and our mistakes and our victories and even Satan's work in the world. And he feeds them into the tributary of the river of his decrees. And he accomplishes what he wants to get done. How he does it? You got me. But the Bible teaches that God is involved in it all. God is decreeing it all. God is involved in it all. He is the one that's orchestrating everything. But he doesn't make the Babylonians or the Chaldeans go after Job's family and kill them. They're marauders to begin with. That's how they live their lives. They're violent people. He didn't say... He didn't stir them up and say, I'm going to give you guys a peaceful of the people in the neighborhood. I'm just going to make you demonic for a while and go kill Job's people. And so what God is saying, what Ruth is saying here, that God is in, he's the primary cause of everything. He's not blaming God, just the way that God is dealing in her life. And she's very honest about it. And what's, what I think is amazing is that What's going to happen next? They lifted up their voices, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth came to a decision, and Orpah came to a decision. Orpah said, you know what? I'm not going to make your people my people, and your God's not going to be my God. 
But Ruth says she that is. Ruth makes a decision that that road where, Ruth, uh, where Naomi stops to say, do you count the cost? Oprah, Oprah says, oh, see, I told you. Oprah says, I'm going to go back. Though she, they loved her dearly. They loved her dearly, but it was counting the cost. Why should, what should I go back? They don't know who, she doesn't know who God is. She doesn't know who Yahweh is. She doesn't know who El Shaddai is. So why should she put her faith in them, just in him? She doesn't know who he is. So she departs, and she rejects Yahweh. But Ruth, for some reason, God has worked in Ruth's life. And how can else can it be other than Naomi's testimony? Through all these years, these ten years of testimony from Naomi, Naomi must have talked about how deliciously wonderful Yahweh is. How he's a God of being in control. How he's sovereign. How he's blessed them with the covenants. Talked about all the patriarchs. Talked about all this going on. Sending a picture of who God is so that Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I've decided. I've, seen, I've been living in darkness. I now see the light. I have nowhere else to go but with you. She clings to her. She cleaves to her. As a husband and wife cleave to one another, in a sense of not in the, that intimate way, but into that way she's holding on to Ruth. Because Ruth is, for her, the representation of this whole new life that God is going to promise her. And so she says, don't stay with me. Your sister-in-law left. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Please do not make me repent from following you, he said, she says. For where you go, I will go, and where you lie, even to the grave, which is quite a testimony. Even to the grave. She goes, let us be buried together. Because why? We're not only mother and daughter, but now we're God's people together. And where you die, I will die, and I will bear. May the Lord do so to me. And more also of anything but death parts from me. And Naomi says, wow, I'm not going to say anything else. She really means it. And so we see God working by God's grace in this dark, dark period of the book of Judges. In this little haven where we see that even though we don't see God working all the time in the book of Judges, which we will see that. I mean, if you read it, you may not be able to see it. But we see that, that by these these individuals living ordinary lives, living with worrying about food, worrying about family, worrying about death, trying to stay alive, God is orchestrating that whole thing to the point where he uses, he uses a woman who says that God has dealt with me bitterly and saying, wow, do I really, look at this woman, she's talking about this God dealing with her bitterly and I'm going to follow her? I'm going to follow that God? What's, what's that blessing? That's why we need to be careful of the gospel that we tell people. We've got to be sure that when we tell people about the gospel, are we really telling them the gospel? Are we telling them God's story? Or are we telling them our story? Our story is insignificant when it comes to the gospel. It's insignificant. What God is doing in your and my life makes no difference. You know why? Because I can give up drugs. I can give up, I can give up depression. I can get rich. Do I need God? Not in my philosophy and my theology of life, I don't. I can follow some of these 
Guys on these commercials, leaning against a Porsche, this could be you. I could go off and find some great diet or find nutrition through some other means. I could go to a counselor and get my problems taken care of. You don't need God for that, even though God's ultimately involved in the primary cause of it. But he causes the grass to grow, but he does, I mean, the Bible talks about, he causes all these things to grow because he is the one ultimately in control of it. It's like Pharaoh's heart, who's been hardened. Either Pharaoh hardened his heart or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says both. But what happened? God was ultimately the primary cause of hardening Pharaoh's heart. But what did he do? He let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. It's like me. I think about that. I take off a, a jar of Play-Doh. If I keep on covering that Play-Doh up, it won't go dry. If I let Play-Doh be Play-Doh and put it out of cover in the middle of the desk, <laughs> turns hard because it's Play-Doh. I let Play-Doh be Play-Doh. Without God's sovereignly involving himself in the interaction of hardening or not hardening somebody's heart, that makes all the difference in eternity. So God is the one ultimately hardening Pharaoh's heart, but what does he do? He takes away all of his intervention in Pharaoh's life and let Pharaoh be Pharaoh, so Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You see God being the primary versus the secondary. He doesn't violate Pharaoh's will. He doesn't violate our will. Malon, Kilian married Moabite women. Elimelech took his family and they went. God didn't say, don't go. They went. But God used that event, as we're going to see, to bring in redemptive history. Because he takes this Moabite woman and brings her to a place where she plays an immensely important place in the redemption of the world. By the summing coming of Christ. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It said, wow. So she says, don't call me Naomi. Now, she may have been a little theatrical. Some people think that she was a little bit pity party here. You could read into that, you know, maybe. Maybe wanted people to know. She really didn't have to say that, but it's for our context. We've got the scriptures given to us. Because here she is, she's... She's honest before God. She's not violating her relationship with God. She's just saying, God, this is how I feel you're dealing with me. For the Almighty, El Shaddai, has dealt with me very bitterly. I went away full, meaning that if there was a famine, she couldn't have had a whole bunch, but she's talking about she had a husband, which meant a lot to her. She had her kids, which meant a lot to her. So she was full in that sense. Now I've come back empty. But you know... Again, the reason I think this is a pity party because if, 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 if Ruth is hearing this, what does that say to Ruth? What am I, chopped liver? Really? Ruth, I'm clinging to you, Naomi. You're my, you're my kindred. Your God is my God. I would go with you wherever you die. Oh, I come back empty. I've got nobody. This is how so, you know, we can become so focused on our, on our own selves and our own lives that we don't look at the blessings that we have around us. Either living with us or whatever, some, whatever we have. The blessings that we have. And so here's Mara, excuse me, Naomi looking at it and saying, she has nothing. She has no blessings whatsoever. And 
We just read how a blessing Ruth is to her. But she's not going to realize, as you and I don't know, the rest of the story. You and I don't know. You know, you and I don't understand what God is doing in our lives. We may say that God is dealing, God, you're dealing with me bitterly. I just feel, I'm almost, I feel like an enemy to you, the way you've been dealing with me. This is what, this is what Naomi's saying. But she's not violating her relationship. She's just being honest with God and saying, this is how I feel. But evidently, she just believes in the sovereign God because she says, I went away full. The Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has testified against me. And El Shaddai has brought calamity upon me. The God who is powerful, the God who is the God of providence, the God who can take care of everything, has dealt with me bitterly. I don't know why, but this is how I feel about it. But she may feel that she doesn't deserve a good name because she may have made a mistake and she has repented and she's come back to her people. Imagine losing face. Oh, Naomi, your husband's dead. Your kids are dead and you're brought back this Moabite? I mean, she's got to take this ridicule. She's got to eat crow. She's got to go back and feel pretty sad about this. So Naomi and Ru- and Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her Returned from the country of Moab, returned. They, re, they, they repented. They came back. And they came to the house of bread, Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest, which means that God is doing something. God is bringing, God is stirring, God is working, God has visited. And she said, the Lord has visited Bethlehem. And you and I are thankful that God visited Bethlehem. That's why we can, this is a great series for Christmas because it talks about the coming of Christ. It talks about God working in a life of Ruth, a Moabite woman, and Naomi, a covenant child who had, been, who had gone away and left, whether following her husband or being, being accepting and going through this and just realizing that we've got to take things in our own hands. We need to do what we need to do. Regardless, it's a great story because you and I are going to say to God, you know, God, you're just not getting it right. You're just not doing it right. You're not working fast enough. I need this. I need this. I need this. I need you to do this for me to be happy, to find contentment. I need you to do this. And he's going to say, oh, Jim, you're just the same always, aren't you? I'll keep loving you and I'll keep loving you and I'll keep loving you just like your parents would, Right? You know, our kids disobey us, our kids drive us crazy, but yet we still love them. They still look at us and say they didn't do it, like my son Philip used to do things, and he says, Dad, I didn't do it, my hands did it. <laughs> you know, God, God loves us. He, as I think I told you this before, God looks upon that refrigerator and says, this is your work. I don't, under, I don't, look, I don't know what it looks like, but I love it for it. I love it because it's from you. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, this is a dog in a house. Oh, yeah, I can't see it, but I love it as long as you say it's a dog in a house. God takes and looks at us that way. This is who Naomi is. Naomi is a child who has been away and now come back. Ruth is now someone who says, just uses the words that God uses when he made the renewal of the covenants with Israel. He says, I am your God, and you are my people. Ruth had to hear, had to hear that from Naomi. To be able to say, this is how important this is of how I believe in your God and being a part of being your people, your covenant people, that I want that kind 
of love. Naomi is never saying she's empty, but she doesn't realize that through Ruth, she is feeling the agape, chesed love of God. It's just a cool story. It's just great to be able to see that God is involved. No miracles, no voices from heaven. You know, that's what's in that with your life and my life. Or sometimes you would say, Lord, I just need to know. Can you take your finger and write it on the wall for me today? I just need to know. Can you send somebody along that's going to say, God, send this message to me? But we don't need that. Because God has made himself thoroughly revealed through his son and through his word. We don't need anything else. And yet God loves us as this kind of, these kind of people. We're all prodigals at times. We want God to give us what we want now. And yet he just says he's there waiting for us. He loves us. He's that kind of God. And if you don't know that, continue to read the Bible. Continue to look at Ruth and see how God is intimately involved. These aren't miracles that are taking place. God is the primary cause of this. Again, you know, and this the final thing, just to think about we use miracles so much. We use the word miracle so much as we use the word heroes. Everybody's a hero. I don't even know what a hero looks like now. Because everybody's a hero for doing what they usually do. They go into a line of work. They signed up to do that kind of work. They're brave people. But heroes are something else in my mind. A miracle is what people talk about, is that you can't explain it. Science can't give you a reason for it. It's like one... One uh, professor said that when his daughter was born, she had bleeding on the brain. And they didn't know if she was going to live. Then all of a sudden they took another uh, x-ray of her brain and there was no blood. The blood was all gone. There was no blood. And there was no reason for ever the blood ever coming out. And there was no reason. He says to me, that's a miracle. Because no doctor, no psych, no uh, uh, test. Nothing can show the reason or the cause of it coming or ceasing. It has to be a miracle of God. But things that take place, natural processes, we can be awed of. You know, we stand and we hike and we look at the mountains and we go, this is a miracle. No, it's God's creation. I think of my, I mean, my life changed when my son was born. From that morning when he was born in September 28, 1980, I saw, I said, wow, this is birth. To me, it was a miracle. But you know what? It was, it was insemination, conception, and birth. But to me, I looked at it from a whole different perspective. We have reasons. We know why, where children come from. We know how they grow. We know how they're born. There's, everything is not a miracle. It's, we're in awe of God's creation. So we see here, this is a book not full of miracles, except for Ruth's conversion. Because you know what? She was dead. No scientific explanation for bringing her back from the dead. You were dead. I was dead. We were blind. We now see. We now are alive. Why? You can't get a doctor to diagnose how my heart changed. That's a miracle. That's the miracle that Ruth has experienced. And Ruth will constantly show us through here that God is using her and Naomi got it all wrong. Naomi got it wrong. But all of a sudden we see chapter 2 and we see Naomi now 
changing because now she starts seeing, oh my goodness, there's somebody actually moving the cursor on the screen. You ever see anybody go in there? If you work in a, in a corporation, in an industry, where you're having a, the help desk come and call you up and you call the help desk up because you need help and you're saying, I need somebody to come in, look at my computer and say, can I come into your computer so you give them the rights? And they're working on your computer from the outside. So you watch the cursor moving and you're not doing anything. It's kind of weird the first thing you watch this thing going and it's a lie, you know. And this is what I see that, you know, this is where Naomi starts looking and seeing that God's really involved. There's pointing to all these things that she's realizing she never could see before. Because she was so full of pity that she just forgot for a moment who God was. Hey, that happens to me on a regular basis. But God is a God of love. God is this covenant God. We have this in Christ. We see the cross. We have the resurrection. We've been given the promises of God. This is what the Christmas story is about, that, we, that God is involved in ordinary people's lives, in Mary, with Joseph, and the shepherds. So I pray that, again, this book of Ruth, if it's old stuff to you, I pray that we squeeze some new juices out of it for you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your, your goodness to us as we read this book and we realize, Father, that you, we are wayward children at times, that we are prone to wander from the God that we love and and yet you, you, you are just, your covenant with us, your covenant with us is just so binding because it doesn't depend upon our performance. It did depend upon Christ's performance. And we are here to thank you, Jesus, for living for us perfectly and dying for us perfectly. And we thank you for the gift that you've given to us of life and yourself, that we may become the children of God not born of any man's will or any human seed, but by the will of God, by the Spirit of God. We thank you for that. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to worship you, as we continue to live our lives for you, that you would be with us, that you would, we would help us, Lord, to see that you are the God of the handiwork of creation and you care about ordinary people. And, Lord, I thank you for that when we find ourselves stuck in ordinary ways, that we will realize that you are very much a part of that life. And Lord, I thank you that when we are suffering and we find ourselves struggling with your providence in our lives, that we still, like Naomi, can be a witness. People are watching us. We still have a story to tell, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We still have, we are, we're still called to be evangelists and witnesses. Either no, we don't understand, we are called to proclaim the riches and the glories of you. So I pray, Father, as Bob prayed this morning, that you would give us opportunities in very mundane settings, the ability to plant seeds for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.